Well, hey friends, it's Wednesday morning and we're here with Revelation chapter 3. I'm excited to see you all this morning, even though it's a really kind of dark and gray day here in Dallas. I've got the lights on. I hope that you're feeling warm at home and we will jump right in to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the last three letters to the seven churches of Asia. So we did the first four a couple weeks ago, then we had Thanksgiving break, and now we're back. And we've got three weeks here between Thanksgiving and Christmas where we will be together as we continue on through Revelations chapters three, four, and five. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, stayed safe, but were able to connect with family and friends. Let's start with a prayer and we will jump in. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you such thanks for this day. Thanks for the gift of this life, and thanks so much for all that you do for all of us. God, we pray today especially for those in our community who need your healing touch, those who are in pain, those who may be near death. We pray also for all the souls we have lost, that through you we may remain united one to another, the living to the dead, and that as we proceed in this season of Advent, we can be reminded of your hope that sustains us no matter what happens in our world. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, friends. Today, I want to remind you that we are a good community here in Bible study. And so if those of you who are joining us perhaps for the first time, or maybe you've only been with us a few times, we want you to join our email list so you can stay up to speed on everything that we are doing together. And so visit stmichael.org RBS, that's Rector's Bible Study, stmichael.org RBS. You'll be able to email Meredith Rose, join our mailing list. And as always, if you are watching on a social media platform, Facebook or YouTube, I would love to see your comments. And so please do comment away. Let us know that you are here, where you are from, say hello to your friends, maybe make a new friend. And of course, as we go through this study, I'd love to know your thoughts and your comments and especially your questions because that helps me to refine the way that we teach, the, what I talk about, and hopefully it will be as helpful as possible to everyone else who is watching. And so please do make your comments and ask your questions as we go and Meredith will be monitoring those comment fields to send those questions to me. So we're gonna start with a real quick Q&A. Um, Last week, we began with the letters to the churches in Asia. We did four of the seven. This week, we'll finish those letters, three of the seven. Um, but we had one question from Fran that I thought was important for us to just clarify as we jump in here. Last chapter, in chapter two, we had two references to the Nicolaitans. And in both references, effectively, what John was writing or what Jesus said to John in that vision was that the Nicolaitans were problematic. They were trouble. And Jesus was encouraging these church communities to resist the Nicolaitans. So, friend asked, are we actually going to, uh, who are the Nicolaitans? And how do they fit and really why is there a concern? So, the Nicolaitans are an interesting sect in the early church that we honestly don't know a lot about. 
In the second, third, fourth centuries, there were a lot of different things um, that we needed to do, that churches were challenged to do, um, and they were trying to work things out within their communities. And one of the ways that they were trying to work things out in their communities was by resisting kind of the cultural context all around them. In other words, these communities were existing in real cities in the Roman Empire doing real things, and they were challenged by the civic life that surrounded them, right? Not everyone around them were following Jesus. In fact, in most of these communities, in these early churches, the seven churches in Asia, you're talking about a few dozen people who were actually following Jesus. Um, we might think of the church like a church nowadays, where you may have a church on one corner and a synagogue on one corner and those sorts of things, and that's not really how it was. These early Christ followers, especially right now in this first century, only a few decades after Jesus' ministry, they're very small. So even in the big cities, you may only have 20, 30, 40 Christians in these little church groups. That meant that they were living very counterculturally. They were living in a way that most of the people around them were not. Now, when that starts, it's relatively easy to have that fervor and that excitement of faith in that new community. But as we might suspect, as time goes on, the years turn, questions and concerns and challenges really made it difficult for some of these little Christian communities to resist doing all the non-Christian things that went on around them. The Nicolaitans were one of those groups that really influenced and impacted the people who were in these early Christian churches. Like I said, we don't really know a lot about this group, but one of the things that we do know is that they were related to Jezebel, Balaam, and Balak. And if we kind of take that whole story together, we know that one of the big reasons why the early Jewish community was encouraged not to follow Jezebel and, um, and why Balak was really a bad person um, is because they were trying to undermine the Israelites, undermine God's chosen people in some specific ways. Two, in particular, one is that they were eating the foods that the Jewish laws said could not be eaten. In particular, they were eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, as you know, sacrificial animals, once sacrificed, could not be eaten by good Orthodox Jewish people. But people who were not Orthodox Jews might actually like a lamb that was sacrificed that was just going to be thrown out. And so there were communities around the Jews who would certainly eat animals sacrificed to both Yahweh and to idols and gods in other contexts. Resisting the temptation to eat those animals was pretty difficult. I mean, it sounds a little strange to us because meat is so prevalent and easy access, but back then, meat was only very occasional. Meat was for a celebration. Meat was for a very honored guest in your home. It was not just for every night of the week. And so when you were really hungry and you really had no food, a little bit of meat could make the difference between life and death. And so resisting easy meat when 
the laws of your religious tradition says not to eat was difficult. The other is resisting sexual temptation. And so part of the story of Jezebel and Balak is that they sent people into the Jewish community, women into the Jewish community, to seduce the Jewish men, to literally have affairs with these Jewish men so that these women would get pregnant and then create a complicated life for the men who now had children outside of marriage, right? I mean, this is not good. We shouldn't be doing this anyway. Um, but that was part of the temptation at the time that they were seeking to resist. And so in a very similar sense, the Nicolaitans are tempting these early Christian communities to live in ways that are not the faithful ways of the gospel and then of the early apostles, like Paul or John or Peter and on and on. Um, the last thing I would say is that recent scholarship indicates that perhaps Nicolaitan is actually a Greek translation of the name Balaam. So if we remember back to the story, Jezebel and Balak and Balaam, Balaam was that kind of prophet character who encouraged Balak to send the women into the Jewish camps. Balaam is perhaps a an odd Greek translation that became Nicolaitan. And therefore, there's a very explicit tie between those two stories, one from the Old Testament and then now this one from the first century Christian communities. So there you go. There's your answer about the Nicolaitans. Um, it's an influence that persists through all of these letters. Um, and so as we jump into chapter 3 today, Hold in your mind the challenge of resisting the temptations of the world around you. That is, in essence, what all of the seven letters are trying to encourage the communities to do. To simply resist what seems easy, cheap, free, in order to live the life that Jesus is calling them to live as disciples. So let's start with chapter 3. And a reminder, if you've got any questions or comments, put them in the chat. Uh, Meredith is going to be monitoring that chat and will let me know if there are comments, questions, or any clarity I can provide. Let's open up to Revelation 3, and we'll jump into this letter. This is the fifth letter to the seven churches, and this one is addressed to Sardis. And just like two weeks ago, I'm going to effectively just read each of the little messages to the cities as we discuss each one. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. The angel of the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels." Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Okay, so let's start with 
what is Sardis? Where is Sardis and all that good stuff? So Sardis as a city was very important in this whole Western Asia Minor region. Sardis was a very well fortified and protected city. It was kind of a, a fortress inland so that the leadership of that region had a place effectively to fall back to, right? That was really a military hub. Sardis was, was and remained that kind of military fortress for hundreds and hundreds of years. And what is interesting is that in our commentary that many of us are reading together, the N.T. Wright commentary, he makes reference to Sardis as a city that was considered impregnable. Right, it was genuinely the fortress where, no matter what else was happening, the people of Lydia, which is really that western region of what is today Turkey, were able to fall back and resist any siege from any outside power. About five or so hundred years before the writing, before the first century, there was a moment when Sardis was attacked and sieged by Cyrus the Great of Persia. Now, I didn't know any of this. And so I looked it up and it was fascinating because there was a king of Lydia, which again is Western Turkey, um, named Croesus. And Croesus was watching the Persians expand their empire. So remember, because we just did Daniel, the Assyrian Empire overtook the Northern Kingdom of Israel, the Babylonian Empire overtook Assyria, and then went down into Israel and took the Southern Kingdom of Judah, still the Israelites, up into exile. So the Babylonians kept the Israelites in exile for 70 years until Cyrus the Great came charging over from Persia and sacked that region. Now, Babylon is effectively Iraq. Um, it's Mesopotamia, it's that kind of fertile crescent area. So if you think geographically, it's between what is in the east in, in Iran, Persia, and what's over farther west in Turkey or Asia Minor. And that's where Lydia and Sardis is. That's where all these seven churches are. Babylon was a, geographically in between Persia and Turkey, Iran and Turkey. At some point around the same time that Cyrus is overtaking Babylon and then sending the Israelites back from exile, King Croesus of Lydia, who's over in Western Turkey, is watching Cyrus and the Persians just expand their empire bigger and bigger and bigger. And the concern for a king in Western Turkey is that they're next, right? As the dominoes begin to fall, Cyrus and his Persian army are becoming so large that they will ultimately keep moving west and sack the region or kingdom of Lydia. So King Croesus decides that he wants to go on the offensive rather than just wait to be on the defense. And so Croesus goes into Turkey, goes toward Iran, and he begins to attack Cyrus's forces in order to effectively hold them back and undermine them so they can't continue to march west. Croesus fights Cyrus. So this is the Lydian army and the Persian army. They fight one another and they really don't win. Neither of them wins. So Croesus and the Lydian army fall back and decide to wait out the winter back in Western Turkey in Lydia and 
wait to attack Cyrus again. That cycle happens and ultimately Cyrus pushes King Croesus back to Sardis. Croesus retreats, takes all of his forces to Sardis because Sardis is kind of, is that fortress where anyone trying to attack them and overwhelm them will ultimately fail because it is believed to be impregnable. And so Croesus sits in Sardis for 14 days, but Cyrus figures out a way to actually surprise attack within the walls of this fortified city and ultimately crushes King Croesus and the Lydians in the fortress of Sardis. Okay, so sorry, as you can tell, I'm a nerd, I like this stuff. And so all of that is to say, when we get this letter to the church in Sardis, there is a nod to the arrogance that led to Sardis's ultimate defeat by Cyrus, okay? So when we look at what Jesus says in this vision, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour I will come to you. What's happening here is the people of Sardis would have remembered this siege, right? We can remember things a few hundred years ago and the people of Sardis would have been so ashamed and embarrassed by this defeat that it would have been passed down in oral tradition and stories for generations and generations. And what Jesus is seeing in the people of Sardis, in particular in the church in Sardis, is that they've not quite remembered this lesson. They are still a bit self-righteous, still a bit too confident, and they are taking for granted the security that they think they have. Now, obviously, Jesus in this message is talking about their spiritual reality, but he's using their physical reality and history to really kind of break through the crack of their veneer, of their confidence, in order to get at a piece of vulnerability that helps them grow and become more spiritually confident in who they are. In other words, don't be lazy disciples. Don't take for granted what you think is so great about you and instead remain vigilant, remain attentive, remain energetic in growing and becoming closer and closer to the kind of disciple that Christ hopes you will be. Okay, that's really the message. And he's got a twofold challenge here. So if we look at verse two and then verses three and four, the first challenge that he offers here in this letter he says, I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. So whatever the people of Sardis are doing, it's not quite right enough, right? This is such a little like Southern style jab, you know, rather than saying you're not doing it right. Jesus says, I've not found your works perfect. <laughs> so it's like, I, it, this leaves much to be desired, right? It's this tactful euphemistic way of saying, you're not as good as you think you are. And so challenge number one is don't be so arrogant. You're not as good as you think. Then we get verses three and four. If you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know the hour I will come to you, which we've already talked about. And then verse four says, yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. In a sense, what is happening here in this message is that the people of Sardis 
have an arrogance about them, a confidence about what they do that is a little overblown, and because of that, they have effectively not worked to become clean, right? They've not been doing the work of discipleship, and instead, they've been soiling their clothes, which might literally mean what we think it means. It could also mean that they just simply are allowing the world to impact them, allowing the world to make them dirty and dusty, and they're not taking the opportunities of their faith to really be cleansed, to be made whole, to be forgiven in the way that we're called to be in the gospel. Now, I want to pause and kind of bring this to the 21st century, right? I don't think it is very hard for us, those of us in this study, living relatively comfortable lives, not perfect, but pretty comfortable, secure lives here in America in the 21st century. It is not hard for us to understand the ease and the temptation to allow our faith to become sleepy, to allow our faith to become lazy. We can become less alert, less wakeful. We can become the kind of people who don't really look for Christ in the world, who don't anticipate the coming of the kingdom, who don't really work like we could to help bring about the kingdom. And so at the end of this letter, we see a phrase that we see with all the letters that uses the word conquer, right? Verse 5 says, if you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. If you conquer. A couple weeks ago, I didn't really address this word, but I thought it's important now. The word for conquer, the Greek word, can be translated a few different ways. And a secondary, very good translation, second to conquer, is overcome. And so I want you to, as we read through these letters, flip the word conquer so you're not conquering your enemies, right? It's not this overtly physical, aggressive kind of um, person-to-person sort of uh, overwhelming, but more so overcoming the challenges of the world around us. So if we can overcome temptation, if we can overcome our affluence, if we can overcome our laziness, then we can actually be made white, be clean, walk with Christ, and inherit his kingdom with him. That's the end of this fifth letter, fifth letter, to Sardis. All right, so a reminder, if you've got questions or comments, I'd love to see them in the chat so that we can fine-tune, refine, the way that we are addressing these letters. So until I see anything coming, um, we'll jump into letter number six to Philadelphia. Look at verse, we'll start with verse eight, and I'll try to read through this relatively quickly. Verse eight is addressed to the church in Philadelphia. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer... I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So we'll start, like we've been doing, with a little word about Philadelphia as a city. As a city, Philadelphia is the only one of the seven church communities, the seven cities where they get a letter here in Revelation that isn't a major city in Asia Minor. And that kind of sounds funny to us because if we look at all of the cities, the one name we recognize is Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia became an important city in the American colonies and it's because it comes directly from this church community in Western Turkey. Philadelphia, however, at this point in Asia Minor is unimportant. It is effectively an in-between city. So if you can think of two major hubs, Philadelphia is kind of the in-between place. It's the largest place between the two major hub cities. So it's not a military anchor like Sardis. It's not an economic power like Smyrna. It's not a port city like Ephesus. It really doesn't have a particular way of being. And yet, Philadelphia has a unique characteristic that is important to understand regarding this letter, and that is, many scholars believe, Philadelphia was, in a sense, an outlying community of people seeking to make the world a little bit of a better place. I'll put it differently. Imagine that you're in a major city and there's the rush of regular life, right? It's a little dirty, it's a little fast-paced, it's a little cramped, but it seems worth it because you've got access to the stuff you need, you're able to uh, make a good living, maybe you're more secure in general because there are more people, which makes it harder to attack anyone, and on and on. There would certainly be people living in those cities who would like to get out of that kind of rat race, right, kind of thing. And so Philadelphia could have been, and some scholars think very likely, a place where people who were done with the city would go to just live a little better, a little differently, not quite so fast-paced, a little bit more communal, a little bit more kind and considerate, which is why Philadelphia means what? The city of brotherly love. The literal name of this city is meant to represent the desire of its inhabitants to be just a little bit better than the other cities, to define and root themselves in a hopefulness and a vision of how life could be that's just a step better than the kind of absent-minded rush of a major city. So. When Jesus says that Philadelphia 
has a door set open before it that no one is able to shut. He's really leaning into this, the DNA of the community as being one that maintains kind of this open door connectedness in a way that the other cities really do not. Now, let's jump into what is one of the big problematic verses in this letter, which comes in verse 9. Um, we heard in the letter to Smyrna a reference to the synagogue of Satan. That's rough. This one's even a little more harsh. And so let's look at it one more time. Verse 9 says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, before we jump a little too far, let's put ourselves in the first century and understand the historic context of this verse. The caveat here is to say, there is historic context, <clears throat> you know, who wrote it, and to whom, where, when, that sort of stuff. Boom, there's that little bubble. Then there is the way that it has been understood and applied over time. We need to obviously understand and acknowledge and own that verses like this are some of the verses that have been used to do very hateful things, used to emphasize and expand and defend anti-Semitism in its many different forms over the last 2,000 years. I want to acknowledge all of that and go back to the very historic context of this particular verse. What is happening in these cities, in these communities, all over the Roman Empire, where Christian churches begin is often just like Jesus himself began, with good, faithful Jews, right? Who did Jesus call to be his disciples? Good Jewish people, men and women who were, you know, somewhat on the outside. They were poor. They were probably, you know, most of them were not very well educated. Some of them may have even been slightly outcast, whether that's, you know, a, you know, tax collector or whatever. But they were Jewish people. And it's important for us to remember that as Paul and others went and planted churches, their MO was to always go to the synagogue first. Because how do they all understand Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies? Messiah, Jewish Messiah. Now, what they figure out in the first century is that the Jewish Messiah is for everyone, right? That Jesus is not only for the Jews, that the Messiah, the whole idea of the Messiah, is saving the entire world, saving all of humanity. And what we see is a shift in understanding that may have been misunderstood by Jews post-exile, before Jesus' ministry, which is the idea of chosenness. I've said this before in Bible study, but just as a reminder, the Israelites are God's chosen people. Okay, but what chosenness means and how we understand chosenness is very important. Chosenness was understood as something better than, right? Being chosen meant we're better than you. 
what Jesus says and the way that Messiah is developed over time is that chosenness meant responsibility. Being chosen actually meant that we are responsible for then spreading this news, right? As followers of Jesus, we might be chosen, but we are chosen in order to do a thing, right? We're chosen to go out and spread this good news, to be evangelical, to bring all people in. No one's left out. And so as Paul and the other apostles, missionaries, began to plant churches in all these communities, they would show up, they would go to synagogue, there'd be a moment in the synagogue worship where they would invite any of the rabbis or you know, teachers to speak, and Paul would stand up and say, everything that we have been talking about, what we have been waiting for, has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, the Jewish people began to be wary of these Jesus-following prophets, teachers, rabbis, missionaries, whatever you want to call them. And they began to actively resist these Jesus followers from kind of taking their people, right? I mean, you think about it, here you've got a synagogue, an active community, and you have these Jesus followers show up and begin to pick people off one by one. At this point in time, the Christian communities in places like Philadelphia would have been much smaller than the Jewish communities. But the Jewish communities would have felt very threatened by these Christian communities because they would have begun and gained their early membership from the Jewish communities. Okay, so all of that is to say, the verse that we're looking at here, where we get this harsh language about Jews, is not meant to be anti-Semitic, but instead it's meant to articulate an intra-Jewish, an intra-Semitic kind of conflict that is going on in the first century. Because you've got good Jews in the synagogue trying to be the sort of Jewish that they think they're supposed to be, and then you've got these other good Jews who are living a life committed to a messianic reality where they believe that the prophecies have come true in the person of Jesus. Both Jews living two very different ways of faith. And so the conflict that is articulated in verse 9 is really an intra-Jewish conflict and not something that is non-Jews raising up and going against Jews. Does that all make sense? I hope that makes sense. So we have here in this church a, an encouragement to keep doing what they're doing. They get a word from Jesus in this letter that says all the stuff you're doing that you're receiving pain for, right? The judgment you're getting from the Jews in the synagogue, um, perhaps the, the business deals that you're missing or maybe the um, hateful slurs that you're receiving, perhaps the opportunities that you're missing, all of that stuff, the pain that you're going through because you are faithful to me, Jesus, is worth it because those Jews have missed the truth. You Jews have seen the truth and your life of faithfulness following the revelation that Jesus gave in the Gospels will ultimately be rewarded. And again, we have this word conquer 
right? If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you will never go out of it. If you overcome, right? Don't think of conquering as something violent, but think of conquering, like overcoming, as something faithful, right? If you stick to what it is that you know is true, even if you experience pain and heartbreak from other people around you, you will overcome, and when you overcome, you will be rewarded. All right. Let me see. I see. Dottie asked a question. Um, it seems to promise that Jesus coming again is happening anytime soon. Decades after this was written, how did these churches manage that it had still not happened? Which is a great question. Um, there is no way that we as faithful Christian people can ignore the immediacy of the Gospels and the letters of the Apostles, Paul, John, Peter, the letters like Revelation, there is an immediacy of Jesus' coming again that at this point hasn't happened, um, <laughs> I say, like a question. Um, absolutely, the church has now for 2,000 years lived in this in-between time where Jesus came and Jesus will come again, but Jesus hasn't come again yet, which is why we tend to articulate this as we know that Christ is the one who came, who is, and who is to come. Um, uh, <laughs> it is difficult, honestly, Dottie, it is difficult to understand the mindset of those first and maybe even second century Christians, um, disciples of Jesus, because we don't have a lot from them about this issue. Obviously, we know, and I think I've said this um, in here before, that the Gospels were ultimately written because the first generation apostles started to die. The reason that the Gospels are really perhaps the most recent written text in our New Testament, um, which is to say that all the other letters were written before the Gospels, basically. Um, that's not a perfect one-to-one, -one, but that's mostly true. Um, the reason the Gospels were one of the last things written in our New Testament is because they just expected Jesus to come back. And once that first generation started to die off, they realized that they had to write this stuff down. And so most of the Gospels were written by students of Jesus' apostles. So it's very likely that Luke was written by the Luke who traveled with Paul. So, for example, so you're talking about people who learned these stories from the first-hand experience. I just used a bad example because Paul obviously wasn't there with Jesus in real life. Um, but you do have people like Peter and others who would have had their own students, and those students would have written down the stories that their teachers told them about Jesus. Your question... I'm trying to think of a good example of a church that actually took 
this question so seriously that they changed the way that they behaved. I can't think of one off the top of my head. There's probably a grossly obvious example that I'm just not recalling. So I'm gonna bookmark this question and see if I can come back and give you all some clear, more explicit examples within the historic record of the first couple centuries that show how faithful communities wrestled with the idea that Jesus said he was coming, but it's been a while, and why hasn't he come? And what are we supposed to do about it? So I'll bookmark that and maybe expand on that next week. Good question. Um, I love questions, so keep them coming. <sighs> I think we're done with Philadelphia. So let's press on to the seventh and last letter to the seven churches of Asia. We'll start with verse 14, and this is Laodicea, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Okay. So this last seventh letter is a doozy. Um, Laodicea was, let's start with what the city is. So Laodicea was at the intersection of two major regional trade routes. So in effect, you had these two major highways that crisscrossed at Laodicea. And so it became a real major trading hub. Um, in Asia Minor, in that western region of, of Turkey, it became kind of a banking center because you had a ton of people who would pass through. They would stay, they would sell, they would buy, they would live, they grew, and effectively became really wealthy. So the Laodiceans were extremely wealthy people. Their wealth, although providing some valuable security, also made them resist the sort of saving grace of Christ. So you've got these people in Laodicea who've heard the call of Christ by some missionary to create a community, but they're not really doing the right kind of work. In other words, they had so much wealth and they had so much security that they'd begun to lull themselves into a false sense that their own faith identity began to crumble and dissolve over time. So similar to Sardis, Laodicea is riding in the middle of the road, right? We get this amazing image of being lukewarm, right? Neither cold nor hot. Being lukewarm seems to Jesus 
to be more problematic than being either cold or hot. And it's interesting because you almost kind of wish that you were all in or you were nothing because being sort of in is almost the most difficult place to be within faith identity. The predicament that they find themselves in is that they kind of don't need anything and they know they don't need anything. And when they don't need and feel totally self-sufficient, it undermines the whole idea of Jesus. So in verse 17, Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Dang! I mean, Jesus is like hitting them, boom, boom, boom. We should note that the whole idea of Jesus is based on need, right? Jesus is not our friend. Jesus is not just a warm hug or our buddy. Jesus is our savior. Save, saving. We often, especially those of us in our communities, know that we don't really need saved from much. I mean, honestly, what, what do we need saved from? We have, you know, and generally speaking, we have financial security, we have food security, we have a lot of emotional security, we've got sort of the basics covered. And it's difficult for people who are so self-sufficient to understand the gift of the gospel. The Laodiceans, maybe, more than any of the other churches, have a sensibility about them that is quite American. They are independent. They are not dependent on anyone else. Their economy is strong. They trade when they want. They don't trade when they don't want. And they don't look for any handouts because they've got it. They've got what they need. They are the ones, really, who are empowered to be helpful to others. And so it creates a culture in which that self-reliance undermines the gift, the saving gift of the gospel. Now, this is hard for us. I want you to, maybe in the next week, kind of put this in your pocket, this idea of what the message of Christ is all about. And I want you to roll this around, meditate on this, pray a little bit about this. It's Advent, and we're invited to spend a little extra time during the weeks to consider issues like this. And part of what I want you to consider is what it means, what you think is the gift of Christ. There are many churches and communities, preachers and whatnot, who teach a gospel that is meant to engage in prosperity. Or they teach a gospel that is meant to engage in fear. I would argue that prosperity and fear are not the gift of Christ. The gift of Christ is, you know what? No, I'm going to stop there because I want you all to think about it. I want you to think about 
really what the real gift of Christ is. In order to provide a bit of context, I want to use one of the examples in this letter to um, Laodicea. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus says, Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. Then to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now this kind of promise is one that echoes a lot of the imagery that we see Christ use in the Gospels. This idea of knocking and answering, of waiting at the door and receiving at the door. For us, it's very easy to think about this passage in our own context. When you read verse 20, right, I'm standing at the door knocking, and if you hear my voice, open the door, I'll come in and eat with you. What did you think? I certainly default to thinking of me and my house, right? So here I am, I'm in my house, I hear the door knocking, I go, Jesus is there, let Jesus in, we're going to eat together. Now that's a metaphor for our hearts and our minds, right? Jesus is knocking and wanting us to come in. And how many times have we heard sermons from people who say, open your heart, open the door of your heart to Christ. He is knocking, answer the door, let him in. That's fine. But I want for you to think more about the way that this knocking on the door is reflected in our gospel lessons than how you may have heard preachers use it in the past. When we look back at the idea of waiting at the door and doorkeeper and looking for someone to come, it's almost always that the master of the house is returning. It's not that the master of the house is inside hearing someone else knock and bringing them in. It's almost always about preparation and alertness and wakefulness so that when the master returns, you're ready to receive him. Here in this letter, Jesus is using that kind of imagery to say, you are watching over my house. You in your community are in my house and I will come knocking. And those of you who open the door to me, the master, will bring me in and we will break bread and we will share the meal together and we will live together. And then what does his promise say? To the ones who conquer, to the ones who overcome, to the ones who stay alert, stay awake, and actually open the door to invite me, the master, back in, I will give a place with me on my throne just as I myself have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. Here in this seventh letter, we get perhaps the best promise of all. Jesus says, your attentive, intentional, alert faithfulness to recognize where I am and when I come is what will ultimately bring you closer to me, bring you in to the kingdom, seated with me on the throne next to God the Father. This is a big challenge for us. Because like the Laodiceans, we have so much. We own so much. We are able to take care of ourselves so well that to put ourselves in the servant's role, to put ourselves 
in the role of being vulnerable and in need and in need of Christ and his saving grace makes us uncomfortable. We don't really like it. We would prefer that we have all the agency we think we have. And instead, we're being challenged here, needled here a little bit to allow the vulnerability of our true human condition to shape our faithfulness. And so I do want you to take very seriously the invitation to consider what you think the gift of Christ is for us, for you in particular. What is it that you need? And I also want to affirm your need. You can need lots of things and do not apologize for your need. I talk to people all the time who apologize for wanting what they think is trivial. God loves you. God loves you and wants very much for you in the same ways that you want for you. And so don't trivialize or apologize for your need, but instead get in touch with your need. And that kind of need, I think, will help us in our own faithfulness. Okay, I see a couple questions here. <clears throat> so Liz asked a question about the Latter-day Saints. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure what your question is if you're asking what are they or how do they fit or something like that. Um, then you also say, so having two different factions of Jews explain Judas. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, not really. Um, eh. Judas is a complicated character. Um, I am, I happen to be the kind of person who understands Judas with a huge amount of sympathy. Um, I think that the character of Judas is highly complex. We tend to put Judas in a box of just a bad guy, right? And he's typically always portrayed as the villain so that if you're telling the story of the passion, right, you get, you get these 11 really nice people and then you get the villain, dun, dun, dun. You know, whenever some Judas comes in, you always kind of want to hear like the bomb music. I don't think Judas was really that guy. Judas is not a villain in the story. I read Judas in a very particular way. I think Judas was impatient. I think Judas was impatient and thought he knew better and was also an incredibly faithful person. And that what actually happened when Judas betrayed Jesus, right? I mean, we get the story. The story is told in a very particular way that Judas betrays Jesus for some money. I actually don't think that the motivation behind Judas's actions were meant for money, certainly not money. Um, and I also don't believe that Judas felt he had betrayed Jesus in the way that the Gospels shape the betrayal. But instead, I think that Judas wanted everyone to know the power of Jesus. If we understand Judas as the kind of Jew who understood Messiah in a very particular way, we talk all the time about how 
The Jewish messianic prophecies pointed to a Messiah that would overcome the evil of the world. And the way that most Jews were expecting the Messiah to come would look like a military leader or a king, someone like a King David, who would reestablish the autonomy and the power and the strength and the security of the kingdom of Israel, just like David had done. Judas saw in Jesus something remarkable, something that changed the way that he believed God was acting in the world. But that doesn't mean that Judas lost the hopefulness that the Messiah would actually, physically, overthrow those in power that day. And so Judas, following Jesus around, believing all the stuff, watching the miracles, committing his life to following Jesus, is also watching Jesus let people act in the ways that they had acted before he arrived, specifically the Romans. Judas, I think, in his faithful impatience, wanted Jesus to do the stuff he knew Jesus could do. In a sense, he knew Jesus could do anything he wanted at any time, overthrow anyone he wanted, change their whole reality. And he was so faithful that he actually set Jesus up, pushed him into a corner with the hope that then the Messiah he knew Jesus was would come out in full strength. And Judas tragically misunderstood what Messiah would do in this world. Very much akin to what I've invited you to consider this week, Judas misunderstood the gift of Jesus in the world. All of that physical reality that all the apostles wrestled with, Judas simply put his money where his mouth is. He pushed Jesus into a corner and expected or even hoped that when Jesus was put in that corner, finally his strength would come through and everyone would see him for the person Judas believed he was. And instead, Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. And I think the tragedy here is that Judas was so broken, was so distraught, that he couldn't figure out how to go on. He couldn't figure out how to move forward. And he thought, I think in a real way, he had killed the Messiah he was so faithful to follow. And so he, he actually just ended his own life, one of the only people in the Bible to ever commit suicide, because he couldn't go on. And we see the redemption of Christ in so many other examples. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, when Jesus appears to the women at the resurrection, he says, go tell Peter and the disciples that I go ahead of them. Why does he pull Peter out from the rest of them? Easy answer is because Peter's the rock and he becomes the first bishop, but I don't think so at all. I think he says, go tell Peter and the disciples because Peter's the one who denied him. Peter was so distraught at his denial that he ran away weeping. And Jesus in that moment shows us just how complete and total 
his redemptive love actually is because he wanted Peter to know specifically that he was forgiven. Judas, unfortunately, just didn't get that moment. But I think that had Judas not done what he did, had Judas not killed himself, Jesus would have absolutely sought redemption in the same way that he sought redemption with Peter. So, obviously, I care a lot about that story. Um, And so I've talked over time. It is now after 1130. And so I thank you all for joining me today. I hope that you have enjoyed the first week of Advent. I want to make sure you know that we've got daily podcasts, meditations, and prayers led by the clergy here at St. Michael, and I would love for you to do that. So go to our website, stmichael.org, if you are not listening every day to our podcast. I promise it will be worth your time. Less than 10 minutes, a beautiful way to start each weekday through this holy season of Advent. And of course, Join us for worship on Sunday and especially for our beautiful Christmas services that are just around the corner. Hope you all have a wonderful day. God bless you, and I'll see you here next week.